Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. We are in this series where we're talking about the difference between faith and hope, and we've been talking about a certain kind of faith that most of us, if not all of us, have on some level, we have this thing called circumstantial faith. And circumstantial faith is basically looking for God in our circumstances, trying to see what's going on in our world and judging how God is involved with us through what's happening in our world. So if you're a, you know, a Christian person and you pray and, and you say, um, you know, Lord, please do this, and then he does it, then you come away from that experience and you say, you know, yay God, way to go, you're awesome, good job. But if you pray and say, God, would you please do this, and he doesn't, then you're inclined many times. I talk to people who go through this. Their, their inclination is to say, well, God's maybe not there, or God certainly doesn't care anything about me. And, and so that's their struggle. Or you know, then somebody hands them a book and says, read this book and do what the book says, and they do that, and that doesn't seem to get God's attention. And they go to a seminar, and the seminar says you should do this, and that doesn't seem to help get God's attention. And you're trying to figure out the formula for getting God's attention. Is it pray, pray, serve, go to church? You know, do I do that? Is it pray, fast, pray, give money, go to church? I mean, what God, what unlocks your heart? What makes you inclined to bless me, to pay attention to me, to give me what I need or what I think uh, I want? And, and so, you know, we're trying to figure out the combination to God's attention. The problem with that is that is a very fragile way to go through life in terms of faith. Uh, if that's your faith system, if that's what your faith hinges on is this circumstantial faith, then you're, you're probably going to go through times when you say, hey, it's not working for me. And so that's kind of what we're trying to talk about and, and get past um, with this series. Because, you know, we prayed and we believed and something happened and, and that was great. And, but, you know, we've also prayed and that, that prayer didn't come to fruition the way we wanted it to. And then suddenly we weren't so sure anymore. And then we prayed again, you know, Lord, you know, I pray that you'd make that girl marry me, and she didn't marry me. She married your best friend, you know, and it's like, what's up with that? You know, God, you're not even listening to what I want. So consequently, it doesn't work out, and you're not even sure if you believe in God or if God's there, or you know, and that's just what happens to us in our faith. And so some of us, you know, along the way, and I'm not so naive as to think that somebody in this room, you might be here bodily, but your, your mind is somewhere else because in your head, you've, if you're honest, you've checked out with God. You've checked out on him. You've said, you know what, I don't know if I believe anymore. I, I, it's possible that you would say that I've abandoned my faith because, you know, if you listen to my story and if I told you what went on with me and how God didn't show up, you would, you know, maybe you would understand. That's what might be someone's story in the room. You know, your story might be that when you were younger, you put God to the test and God didn't come through for you, and so you just gave up on the whole thing. I, I hear that a lot. I talk to a lot of people that that's the case. It didn't work out in the real world, and now you say, you know, you don't have any faith, and that's, that's what happens when you have this circumstantial faith we're talking about where you're looking for God in your circumstances. In week one, we said, we're horrible at interpreting the circumstances. You know, I went to the doctor as a kid, knew I was going to get a shot. I did not think my mother loved me. I wouldn't have said my mom loves me because she's taking me to the doctor. But if you'd asked mom, mom would have said, absolutely, I love him. I brought him to the doctor to get him well. So it, we're not good at interpreting our circumstances at all. So in the first message, we said that the foundation of our faith is not our ability to see God in the details or in the circumstances of life, but the foundation of our faith is, is, is much deeper than that. The foundation is that we've, we've placed our faith in the person of Jesus Christ 
something that happened in history 2,000 years ago. The foundation of our faith as Christians is a person. person. It's not an event in our lifetime. It is a person who came to this world in Jesus, who lived among us, showed us how to live, lived a perfect life, predicted his death, burial, resurrection, went through all of that, and then was raised up and people, hundreds of people, began to profess their faith in Jesus not because of something they believed, they professed their faith in Jesus because of something that they had seen. And they have this extraordinary, extraordinary faith. And if you ask them, how can you continue to, you know, the, the, if you, let me stop and slow down because I'm getting ahead of myself. You might know somebody who's a Christian, who has extraordinary faith, and yet their circumstances are not good. And you would look at them and you would say, how can you continue to have this extraordinary faith when your circumstances are horrible? When I'm looking at your world and your world's not good at all, how can you, how do you, how do, you do that? And, and what their answer would be is, well, first of all, my faith is not based on what's going on in my circumstances. My faith is based in the fact that Jesus Christ loves me, died for me, and rose from the grave. And the answer to prayer is come and go, but my foundation is firm. And then last week we defined faith like this. We said that faith is confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do. That's faith in God, confidence in who he is and that he'll do what he says he's going to do. And then from there we said last week that the bridge between faith and hope, that that they are not the same thing. Faith and hope are not the same thing, but the, the bridge between faith and hope is the promise of God. And so I promised you last week that we would talk about what is the promise of God, that we can, you know, we can come to God and we can ask anything we want and hope that he'll give it to us, what we ask for, but the only thing that we can come to God and ask and then say, God, I'm asking and I believe that you are going to do it, are the things that he has promised us that he will do. We looked at the book of Luke last week at a story where this man with leprosy comes to Jesus, and, and he says, Lord, if you're willing to make me well, I know you can. It's just a matter of, are you willing? And Jesus said, basically, I'm willing. That's all I'm looking for, is someone who knows that I'm capable and, and you know, leaves it up to me to decide whether or not I'm willing to do it. And, and, and you know, so just saying, I know he will, I know he will. God, I know you will, I know you'll heal me. I know you'll give me what I need. Just saying that, that's presumption. Coming to God and saying something like, God, here's what I need. Please grant my request. That's hope. But faith is when you say, God, here is what you have promised, and I am holding you to your promise. You promised it to me. And and I have faith that when you told me you were going to do that, that you really will do that, so I'm holding you to that promise. That's what faith is, what God has promised to do, believing that he will do it. And today we're going to spend a few minutes answering the question, what has God promised you? That's a great question, and you you need to be able to leave here today and know, okay, this is what God has promised me. Now, if you're not a Christian or you left Christianity maybe sometime back, this is a great weekend for you to be here. I'm glad you're here this weekend because in your worldview or in your religious system or lack thereof, there's something in you that wants to figure out how to get what you want from God or whatever that looks like, peace, or you know, uh, might might be a girlfriend. I don't know what you want from God, but it, it could be all kinds of things. But the reason I'm glad you're here today is if you look at Scripture, and if you ever decide to embrace Christianity, here's what God has promised you. And I guarantee you that no matter how good things are going for you now, 
or how bad they're going for you or have gone for you, at some point in your life, you would love to have the assurances that I'm going to show you that God gives to you today. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is hard for me to find, and it's, it's toward the end of your New Testament. If you go to Revelation and just start working your way back, there's several chapters in it. You'll probably land in there, but I always have a hard time finding Hebrews. Now, while you're looking that up, let me talk a little bit about what God has not promised us, okay? We're going to talk about the promises of God, but it's pretty important that we decide what God has not promised us. Um, there are people that if you turned on your television this morning, you might probably could find a preacher somewhere that would tell you that what I'm about to tell you isn't true. You you probably could go to the bookstore and find some books that would argue with what I'm about to tell you today. Here's why. Because if, if you believe what I'm about to tell you today, and if I'm right in what I'm about to tell you today, then you cannot shrink God down and you can't make God your little personal manipulative toy and get him to do what it is that you want him to do. See, there are people who make their money preaching and writing books who want to convince you that you can manipulate God, that you can make him do the things that you want and need him to do, and that if you just have enough faith and you do it the right way, or you hold your mouth the right way, or you, you know, if you buy their prayer cloth or whatever it is, I don't know whatever thing they got going on, that that's what it takes. But what I'm telling you is when you read the Bible, God is way bigger than that. And here's the real big thing. When you get in a crisis situation, you don't want a small, manipulative, uh, able-to-manipulate God. You want a ginormous, huge God that cannot be put in a box and does not answer to your every whim. That's really what you want. And if you're honest, you already know that. Because you asked God for things, and you did all the right things, and you read the books, and you spun around in a circle, you clicked your heels together three times, you did everything you thought you were supposed to do to get God on your good side, and God didn't do what you thought God should have done. And God didn't cooperate with you. And here's why God didn't cooperate with you, because God doesn't cooperate with you. That's not his job. He's huge. He's he's the creator of the universe. To think, God, if you just get on board with my deal, if you just will kind of help me with my thing, then I'll believe in you. And God, if you don't, then I'm not going to believe in you. There, what do you think about that? God is not in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, they don't believe in me. Oh, my goodness. We better get right on that because he's going to leave church today and not believe in me. So here are some things that God has promised us, and really the best way to understand how the promises of God fit with real world life is to read the story of Jesus and what happened to his followers. Because if you want to know how faith in God intersects with real world, there's a story, the story of the disciples illustrates that for us. And and this is kind of a downer, I don't mean it to be, but it kind of is. The men who had the greatest faith in Jesus, men who gave up their livelihood left everything they knew. Some of the greatest men of faith were persecuted, were put on islands, were beaten and stoned and beheaded and crucified upside down. These are the people that we look to and say, man, great faith. But when you look at how their life ended, you go, ooh, I don't know that that's how I want it to go for me. They had incredible faith, but some really bad things happened to them. 
So one of the things you learn is that God has not promised to keep bad things from happening to people who believe in him. Okay, that's, the, that's the first place we got to start because there are people out there who would tell you that if you have enough faith, God will not let bad things happen to you. But you know what? Everybody who's lived from now all the way back to the time of Jesus, everybody who's lived that it isn't alive now has died. There's a profound thought for you. Yeah, I went to school and learned that right there. They all died. Even, even the most pious, wonderful, godly people who prayed prayers, Lord, heal me, take this sickness away from me, they eventually died. I mean, people who love God have passed away. So if something bad happens to you, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. At least you haven't been stoned to death. At least you haven't been crucified upside down. The other thing is the people who are closest to Jesus, none of them became wealthy because of their faith. Not one single one. In fact, one of the things that really gives them credibility in my mind is the fact that they didn't become wealthy. You read their story. There was nothing in it for them, and yet they were, they were people of extraordinary faith. But you would say, wait a minute, if there's nothing in it, how come you continue to believe? And if you read their answer to that question, here's what they would say. I'm telling you, I saw him live, I saw them crucify him, I saw him buried, and I saw him raised from the dead. I had lunch with him three days later. So don't tell me I didn't see him raised from the dead. I saw it. These people did not die for what they believed. These people died for what they had seen. Big difference. Big difference. And you read all over the book of Acts where they're they're constantly saying, we were witnesses to these things. We saw these things. And so, you can love God, and bad things are going to happen to you. You can love God, and it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who has great faith is going to be wealthy. That doesn't, God never promises you that if you have faith in Him, He's going to make you wealthy. God does make some people wealthy. Now, in my estimation, I do not look at me and go, you're a wealthy dude. I, I don't think of myself as a wealthy person, but you know what? I didn't miss a meal this week. <laughs> Look at me. I don't miss many. You know, they call me diesel in the office because when you put food in front of me, it has a tendency to disappear. My mom says, I worry about Brett in a lot of ways. I never worry that Brett will starve to death. You know, that's just not something I worry about with him. I've not missed a meal. I went all week and slept indoors all week. I mean, that's a good, it's a good, are, are we, can we all get on board with the idea that if you slept indoors this week and you got all your meals... You're wealthy. There are people who won't sleep indoors tonight, not because they were camping or decided not to, but because they don't have one. They don't have it indoors. There are people who won't eat today, not because they're on a diet or because they're just trying to trim their waistline, but because they don't have food. Okay, those people are not wealthy. We are wealthy. And for some reason, God has allowed you and me to be rich, but he never promised that. The other thing is that in the New Testament, Jesus would go around and he would heal people. And Jesus would heal people, but he wouldn't heal all the people. That's interesting to me. In fact, there is a kind of a strange story in the book of John, John 5. You don't need to turn there. But in John chapter 5, there is this man who is by this man-made pool in Jerusalem. And what they thought about this pool, these, these people would gather, these multitudes of people who were sick and lame and had all kinds of health problems, they would gather around this pool, and they believed that an angel would occasionally stir the water. 
And the belief was that if the, if the water was stirred, the first one in the pool would be healed. And so Jesus is walking along beside this pool one day, all these people who are laying all over the place just waiting for the water to be stirred in hopes that they would be the first one there. And Jesus is walking, he's basically stepping over these people. And, and as he does, he, he, he walks up to, to, through all these sick people to a guy that's been there over 30 years, in fact, about 38 years. This guy's been sitting by this pool trying to figure out how to be the first one in to beat all these other people. And for 38 years, he's not been able to do it. Now, I just want you to, to imagine with me for a minute that you are that guy that's been sitting by that pool for 38 years, hoping somehow to get in when the, when the water gets stirred. Have you ever seen uh, birds on the ground, uh, a big flock of birds, and then when one of them makes the getaway, then they all make the getaway? Have you ever seen that? That's what that picture would look like to me when one person figures out, hey, the water's being stirred, and then he makes a break for it, and then all the rest of them begin to drag or however they could get into the water to watch this mad dash into the water. That's what this guy had been through every day of his life. And Jesus is walking through all these people. And he, he, he passes by a lot of them. And he walks up to this one guy and he says, hey, what's going on? And he says, I've been here for 38 years. I keep waiting for the water to get stirred up, but I'm never fast enough. I can never get there. I can't, I can't get in. And Jesus says, that's okay. Just pick up your mat and go home. Well, there's a novel thought. I never thought of that before. And sure enough, this guy picks up his mat and he's healed. He goes home. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus leaves that guy and walks through the rest of the infirmed people. He does not heal everybody. All the, can you imagine all the other people that watched what happened with this one guy, and he picks up his mat, and he, they've seen him every day for 38 years. One day he walks home with his mat under his arm, and everybody else is by the pool going, Hey, what about me? Heal me. But Jesus didn't. He walked on. Now, why would Jesus heal one guy, not the rest? I don't know, but it's in John 5. You know what? Every once in a while, even now, God will miraculously heal somebody. Every once in a while, you hear a story about, man, it was bad. It was really bad, and we didn't think he was going to make it, and we all got in a huddle, and we prayed, and God came through, and that's awesome. That's great. But you know what? That's not the norm. I've been in the room with a lot of you when you've had loved ones that, that they were sick, sick people. And we prayed for them, and they didn't get better. They died. God never promises that he's going to heal everybody. And you know something else? And I'm just going to tell you, this is kind of rough for some of you that are younger, and it's rough for those, those of us who aren't. God does not promise. God has never promised to reverse the consequences of our bad decisions. We don't have that guarantee. God never promised, but you know what? Once in a while, you will get a break, won't you? Once in a while, you do something stupid, and your prayer is, you know, God, I'm serious this time. If you will just please let me, or if you will please not let her be, you know, God, please, please, please. Every once in a while, God gives you a break, and you go, oh, thank you, God. And you feel like God intervened for you. And you want to say, maybe I got a break. Let's try this again. Then you go do something else stupid. But he doesn't promise to bail us out of our bad decisions every time. But you know what? Every one of those categories, every single one, from wealth to keeping bad things from happening to us, we've probably all experienced situations where we did, uh, we almost did something that would have resulted in something bad. 
And, and yet, you know, we just go, God, I just feel like in this moment you just came through for me. You gave me what I hoped for and what I asked for, and you didn't give me what I deserved, and you answered my prayer. Has that anybody else's story but mine? I mean, there's times it's like, God, I don't deserve it, but you gave it to me anyway. That's hope. You can bring anything to God. You can ask him for anything. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes he doesn't. But what God has, what has God promised us? What, you know, there are things that we can ask for that he hasn't promised. What has God promised us? If he hasn't promised to make us rich, if he hasn't promised to heal us, if he hasn't promised to keep bad things away from us, what has God promised? Well, in, in John 16, you, you, you may be here today and you don't even believe the Bible, but I, I'm going to give you one verse you can believe in, okay? John 16, you can believe in that verse. You know what it says? In this world, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's one you can believe in. You can go home today and say, you know, I didn't know I believed in the Bible, but I, I know one verse I do believe. Because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And you go, yeah, I got that one. I understand that one. And Jesus said to some of his closest followers, you know, who said, Jesus, we're trusting you. Jesus would say, I know you have a big old faith, but you just need to understand, in this world, you will have trouble. Write it down. There's, there's just no way around it. Because I'm promising, I'm not promising you, Jesus would say, I'm not promising you a lifetime without trouble. So let me say this, and we'll look at these verses. Anytime a preacher, a philosopher, a pastor, a book writer says, if you do this, then God will do this, your response to that would be, well, you know what? That's not my experience in Scripture. That doesn't seem to be the way it happened for the disciples. And and honestly, really, in my life, it doesn't always seem to be the case that even on my best day when I can go through the whole day and only sin maybe twice, you know, still bad things happen to me. But he did make an extraordinary promise, and you're going to love these verses because these verses are relevant to your life today. And if you're on the outside of faith looking in, this is a great time to be looking in. I'm glad you're here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, and so you're going to get to therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest, he's been talking about our high priest, and he says, since we have one, therefore, and, and again, a high priest is the person who is kind of the, the he represents us to God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, that's who the high priest is, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So the foundation of our faith is Jesus. He just tells you that. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Let's look at that again. We do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Now, there's a difference between empathize and sympathize. There's a difference between those two words. I've been with some of you when you have lost a a, a parent, and I've done funerals for some of your parents. I have no idea what that feels like. All I can do when, when one of you experiences the loss of a parent, all I can do is have sympathy. That's all I can do. I can't say I know what that feels like. I can only say it must be horrible. It must be horrible, and I'm praying for you, and I wish it hadn't happened. And, and um, I, I just went through that this week. I may tell you about that in a few minutes. Then there's the word empathize. Empathize means I've been there, and I've done that. Okay, I've been through some pretty hard things in my life, and some of those things, when we're in counseling, I can say, you know what, I know what that feels like. 
I've been through that. I, I, can, I can relate to that. I know what that feels like. That's empathize. The, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, when you think Jesus, don't think someone that is in heaven going, you know, I don't understand what you're going through. I, I, what? What is that? What is, you know, you lost a loved one? What? I don't know what that means. The, the writer of Hebrews says, no, Jesus would say, I know. I know. I know that's not just happening. I know what that's like. I know how that feels. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in, what are the words? Every way. Every way. Just as we are. That's what Scripture says. That Jesus was tempted. I can't even tell you how comforting this is for me. That there is not a temptation that I face that Jesus hasn't faced. Now, sometimes that's hard for me to believe, but it's the truth. The Bible tells me. He has been tempted in every way just as we are. Now, let me tell you why that's important. When we get to these promises in a minute and when you think about prayer going forward, you need to understand that the door you're walking through, the Scripture teaches that Jesus has felt what you felt and has faced what you face. Jesus spent a night dreading the coming day. Can anybody put their hand in the air and say that? I've done that. I've done that. I have spent the night dreading the coming day. I think we've all done that. I'm not talking about exams, students. That's different. Not talking about exams. Study for your exams. You won't dread the coming day, right? Teachers in the room are going, that's right. Amen. He's he's preaching. His boy's preaching. For some, it was a court case. For some of you, you went to bed and you had to get up the next day and go to court for something. You're like, I do not want to do that. For some of you, it was you're going to have a conversation that you did not want to have. I do not want to talk to them about that. I'm dreading it. And you go to bed and it's just like you can't even get any sleep because that's all that's rolling around in your head. Probably every one of us has or will spend the night where we can barely sleep or can't sleep at all because of the events of the coming day. Your Savior spent the night knowing that when he got up the next day, he was going to be tried, beaten, and crucified. And for us, crucifixion is just something that we've seen in the movies. You know, crucifixion is something that we go and watch, and it's made so real by Hollywood, and we cry, and we think, oh, that's horrible, and man, they did such a great job. For Jesus, it was something he watched and saw every day of his life. When he was a little boy, he would walk in Jerusalem, and he would see people who had been crucified. He smelled it. He, he heard it. He knew what it was, and he knew that that was waiting on him. He went through one night knowing, this is waiting on me. How about this? He, ex- he experienced the rejection and betrayal of his closest friends. People that he loved and that he thought loved him. Some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like for one of your friends to reach into your soul with a hook and rip it out by something that they've done to you and hurt you in some way. You need to understand, Jesus knows what that feels like. And you're just numb and you, you, you're from being betrayed and you don't know how to pray. And the author of Scripture says Jesus has been there. Jesus watched his closest friends turn their backs and run away from him at the most critical point in his life. And he listened as a guy that he had poured an awful lot of his time into. Said to about a 14-year-old girl, I have no idea who that man is. Completely, completely denied that he knew Jesus. He felt that in his most critical hour. 
He saw everything he worked for and lived for crumble around him. He knows what it feels like, what you're going through. And he experienced crushing temptation, the kind of which we we probably can't even imagine. Some of you face temptation that you have given into over and over, and you've cried and begged, and you've tried everything you know, and you think, God, are you listening? And God says, I know. I know because my son faced the most crushing kind of temptation imaginable. It, 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 you know, it, what you're going through, God would say, it isn't foreign to me. I know what you're going through. I know how you hurt. You can come to me and you don't have to explain it. Your high priest, your savior, he knows. Now, it's tempting to stop there and sit there for a while because that may radically change the way you approach God. That may radically change the way you pray. But do you know what it should change? It should change our inclination to try to talk God into our stuff as if we need to explain to God what we're going through and how we feel. It should change that in us. He's saying, look, before you begin your prayer, I've been there and I've done that to the 10th power. And listen to how this verse ends. I want to read this whole thing in its entirety. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Wow. That's not me. The thing that Jesus has that you and I don't have is the clarity of having lived a perfect life. It's the clarity that comes with living a life without sin. Because every time you sin and every time you and I respond incorrectly to the pressures of life and the pleasures of life, and every time we do really stupid things, he says, Jesus faced all that stuff and yet was without sin. Verse 16, let us then, that is in light of everything that we've just read and talked about, let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? Confidence. It doesn't say formality. It doesn't say let us approach the throne and remember that he is the king and to come to him with great, extraordinary formality. In fact, formality is the enemy of intimacy. If you're taking notes, that's worth writing down, okay? Formality is the enemy to intimacy. And if you were raised to believe that the way you come to God is with a bunch of these and nows and big flowery language and that God doesn't really hear you unless you say things the right way, then you really don't understand who God is because God has invited you to call him Abba, Father. That is not formal. Okay, Abba, Father is about as far away from formal as you can get. Abba, Father is intimate. Abba, Father is Daddy. I need you. Because the writer of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament say when you come to God, you come boldly, confidently, with extreme emotion. Why? Because he knows what you face and he knows what you're carrying. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And then this next phrase, so that we may receive. Pause. Let me read that again. So that we may receive. Here it is. When you come to God, You are going to receive something every single time. When you come to God honestly, when you come to God with all the emotion, passion, hope, desire, and hurt, however you come, if you will make it the habit of your life to come to God boldly, or the Bible says with confidence, 
knowing in the back of your mind he is not a God who is foreign to your pain and hurt, but is a God who has allowed his son to experience it just like you have. He says, if you'll come boldly and without all the formality and all the religious systems, all the, all the formality that religious systems tend to instill in us, if you'll just come boldly every single time, you're going to receive something from God. You can hold his feet to the fire. You can count on it. You can say, this is what God has promised me. You can know that it's going to happen every single time so that we may receive, and here's the first thing, mercy. Mercy. So that you may receive mercy. Mercy is the fact that God is going to take your issue seriously, not because the issue is serious, but because you are serious to him. Mercy. I take my children's complaints and my children's concerns seriously, not because they always are serious. We know as parents, right, that sometimes the things our kids are worried about really aren't that big a deal. But they become a big deal to you because they are your children. I wouldn't expect my kids' complaints to be all that important to you because they're not your kids, but they're important to me because they're my kids. Mercy is that God is going to lean into your direction and say, I know. I know. I know what happened. I know how that feels. I know maybe nobody else understands and and maybe nobody else stands with you. I know all that. I know. I know what you're going through. Mercy. And I'm just telling you, the older you get and the more mature you get as a Christian, the fact that God knows more and more and more for me is enough. I don't know about you, but for me, that's enough. Sometimes mercy is tangible. Sometimes it's just, God, I don't think I can take one other, I can't take one other thing. And then the phone rings and someone wants to sit down with you and be a friend to you. Mercy. Sometimes it's, it, mercy is just the peace of God and nothing changes and you come and you pour your heart out to God and you say, God, I'm so lonely. God, I can't get ahead. God, I don't have any money. God, everybody gets a break but me. God, this isn't working for me. And God says, you know what? I know. And nothing changes, but something changes in you. That's mercy. But every time you come to God boldly, he says, let me tell you what you can count on. You can count on holding my feet to the fire. You can trust me. This is a faith thing. And I promise, I promise mercy. Mercy is Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. And he already knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows he's going to be the star of the show. He knows that, that it's all going to turn out good. He knows Lazarus is coming out. He knows all that. He walks up to the tomb of Lazarus, and before he does this great big deal, before he intervenes the way they want, Jesus pauses, and the Bible says in John 11 that Jesus wept. And everyone standing around watching Jesus said, Man, look, look how he loved Lazarus. Well, why did he pause and weep? I think he was sending a message to me and you. I think he was sending a message to them that your Savior knows and understands what you go through. Your Savior is not foreign to the stuff that you go. He's not foreign to the emotions you feel. Mercy is God saying, I know. And I'm not angry with you for feeling it. And I'm not put out with you for feeling what you do. Just keep bringing it to me. Every single time, bring it to me. And my frontline response to, your, to it is, I promise mercy. And sometimes it's going to be tangible, and sometimes it's going to be mercy that, 
just takes the pressure off at the right time. And sometimes it's going to be very intangible mercy. It's going to be just this mercy that comes from God knows my circumstance. No one else may know and no one else may understand, but God knows. And then there's the second thing you get every single time. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Grace in this context is the strength and energy to endure. It has been said that God has not promised to deliver you from your circumstances, but that God has promised to deliver you through your circumstances. I think that's true. And many of you listening today could stand up and tell your story of how you begged God and leaned hard on God and nothing changed. But looking back, God gave you just what you needed, the strength and energy to get through it. And some of you would say, as bad as I hated those circumstances, if I had to do it over again, I'm not sure I would opt for easier circumstances because what I experienced and what I've learned is this, the grace of God, the enduring power of God, the strength of God is a lesson I will never forget. And God says, sometimes I'm going to take the pressure off, and sometimes I'm going to intervene in your circumstances, but I promise every single time to give you the grace, the strength, the power to endure. Your prodigal daughter or your prodigal son may not come home for a long time, but I will give you grace to endure it. You may never have the money that you think you need, but I will give you the grace to endure it. You may never achieve in your career what you hoped to achieve, but I will give you the grace and mercy to persevere and get through it. And instead of getting frustrated and abandoning me because I didn't show up in your circumstances, instead you will learn to lean hard into me. I promise it every single time. Grace and mercy in your time of need. And God says, sometimes I'll deliver you from them, and every time I promise to deliver you through it if you'll come to me and not give up on me because you couldn't find me in your circumstances of life. Now, I'll be honest. That is not a real emotionally satisfying sermon, is it? <laughs> when I told you God was going to make you some promises, you're like, all right, give me some money, you know. All right, you know, what color is it? That's what I want to know. How many rooms does it have? Tell me. And then I told you it was going to be grace and mercy, and you said, oh. See, what we want is tell me how to do A, and then tell me how God's going to do B every single time. And right now I could preach and I could work you into a religious frenzy and we could end this with a great big powerful song and send you out making you think that when you do it God's way, God's going to come through and give you everything you want and you'd leave here and go, woo-hoo, and then you get out and you'd go, wait a minute, that doesn't work. Brett lied to me. Read the New Testament. The guys with the most extraordinary faith died for it. Quite honestly, I'm not sure I want that much faith. Here's what we want, and me too, by the way. We want God to give us a can of intervention. You've heard about the other can that they're going to open. We want God to open up a can of intervention. That's what we want. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would break them up so that he will pay attention to me and not her. That's, you know, we want God to intervene. God, at work, they're, they're talking about moving my boss to Toledo. I, please make that happen. You know, just get on board with what they're talking about at work and move him to Detroit. You know, I don't, get him somewhere. 
God, the whole third floor is driving me nuts. If you just wipe out the third floor, we're good. I promise I'll be good from then on. That is how we want God to work. Here's what you don't want. Here's a prayer that you've never prayed. God, I'm such a problem. God, the problem is me. God, I'm my boss's problem. Do something to me. Move me to Toledo. We don't pray like that. See, I don't really want justice coming my way. I want grace and mercy coming my way. I want justice rolling your way. But here's what the Bible teaches. We live in the age of grace and mercy. This is the age where God doesn't bring about justice. This is the age where God extends grace and mercy to you who trust and lean on God. And this is where God extends grace and mercy to people who don't put their faith and hope in God. That you're drawing a breath today, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you're alive, you know, you, 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 you're into this or not, whether you're kind of halfway with God, or whatever your circumstance is, if you're even drawing a breath, God's giving you grace and mercy today. Some of you have been a Christian about a year, and you look at the circumstances that, you, that led you to the brokenness and led you to the place of faith, and you would say, you know what? God extended grace and mercy to me even when I wasn't leaning on him. And if you come to him as an unbeliever, what you get is grace and mercy. Why? Because this is the age of grace and mercy. You know, the question would be, when is it going to be the age of intervention? When is it going to be the age of, ju- of justice? When is God going to come put the smackdown on the people that ought to have the smackdown put on them? When does that happen? You know, we're like, when? I want to see that. That's what I want to see. No, you don't. We're in the age of grace and mercy. And as long as we're in the age of grace and mercy, people who don't know Jesus still have a chance to come to Jesus. It's the age of grace and mercy. But the day that comes, the day of intervention, it's not a little itty-bitty intervention. It's a huge intervention. It is when justice starts. It is when God comes in wrath and says, okay, party over, everybody out of the pool. And on that day, simultaneously, grace and mercy cease. There are no more chances to come to Jesus. So here's the question. If you aren't a Christian, what's it going to take for you? How long you keep waking up every day rolling the dice thinking, well, i got another couple of days in the age of grace and mercy. I'll live them out. One day, it all stops. And justice begins. If you're in this room this morning, you've never given your heart to Jesus. That's the reality. And I can't urge you strongly enough to respond to the promise of God that I will extend to you mercy and grace may not pull you out of a bad circumstance, but you have my mercy and grace. Anybody that's a Christian in this room can tell you it's worth it all. It's worth it all. Let's pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I strongly encourage you to do that. You just do not know how long this age lasts. Do something about it. Let's pray together. Father, we got all kinds of circumstances in this room. Some people are just so elated at news they got yesterday, and other people got horrible news this week, horrible news. Some people, the sun's shining so bright they can't hardly see, they need sunglasses. And then there's other people, it's dark. Father, in it all, there's your mercy, there's your grace. Those are things that you've promised us. 
You never promised us you would deliver us from these things. You just promised that you would see us through it. And Father, if there's somebody in the room this morning who has never cognitively given themselves to you, I pray that you would just come on them. Help them to see what you did on the cross was for them and that in that one act, you forgave them. All they have to do is receive it. Father, we love you. We, we, we don't deserve your mercy and grace. But you're relentless in your pursuit of us, and we give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.